0: more tasa, This is the Maga Puja night. Uh, full moon in February. We have two weeks left of this uh, month to our winter retreat. We did this evening the exo-aric the anagoric precepts and keeping the the white, the, the angelic white ones present here in this uh, sala. This very, uh, very significant uh, occasion taking on this, uh, the the and the and the precepts eight precepts the way of say, living committing oneself to uh, life in non-violence the first precept of Vana Vibhanta to respect life and then to to uh, refrain from doing things that are harmful disruptive to oneself or others and to uh, to uh, renounce say just the comfort luxury and the easy life uh, for for living more simply and without all the necessary with all the uh, items that uh, most uh, people uh, worldly people find necessary for their happiness yeah, the renunciation is is, uh, is is in the spirit of this life of the Anagareta uh, uh, renouncing literally now of Aversion to anything, not just to, to the, uh, dislike or aversion, but uh, learning to let go of that which is not immediately conducive, helpful, or useful for the uh, spiritual path. And so these uh, training precepts, the Anagarika uh, training, is so that you begin to say, uh, uh, can have something to measure yourself by. to Observe and, and uh, reflect upon by establishing yourself, making some commitment to the, to the uh, eight precepts. Because it does, it, it is restraining and, uh, and it's renunciate. So these are words that convey uh, limitation, uh, putting limits on our, our behavior. Uh, and and uh, learning to relinquish, renounce, abandon, let go of these words are also significant in this life. And like any words, we need to contemplate them in terms of a, a spiritual goal, other than say a worldly one. Because in worldly life, we we see we, we see renunciation as something maybe getting rid of things or or abandonment as just. Getting, leaving things behind, getting rid of them out of, out of aversion or out of a sense of guilt or an idea of, of, of forcing yourself to get rid of things to punish, to get a of punishment of penance. But for a spiritual goal, it's not this way. We're not, uh, it's more, say, in the, in the Buddhist path anyway, uh, for limitations. We're learning to, to get that feeling of relinquishment. Letting things go, not holding on to things, like shaving the head and, and wearing the white, is a, a kind of letting go of a lot of your own uh, kind of individual uh, tendencies and, and eccentricities and personal style and and, pers- and personality. Which, can, if you can choose what you want to wear, uh, you know, according to your what you like, then. Uh, we, we emphasize our our own our own personal taste our individuality of personality but in the in the, in the in this way of the shaven head both in the of white in the and the ochre is that it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's a, a, a kind of uniform uh, in order to uh, get some perspective on our own Idiosyncrasies and unique uh, character tendencies, so that when we we're learning to say conform in one way into the uh, external uh, conditioned realm, learn the conformity. that the end, but the um, goal of the holy life is liberation of the heart, to be completely free in the heart from conformity, from Individuality, from attachment to to community, to I mean the whole lot is the realization from Nirvana is to be free from any form of attachment, whether it's to the old uh, ways, conditioned ways of personality and individuality, or or the uh, uh, this is to adopt a new identity as a, as a, some kind of monastic um, and to trying to just conform uh, and, and, and get a whole new set of, uh, of uh, perceptions to, to identify with. But it's a tool, a convention for reflection in order to, to uh, develop mindfulness, in order to see the suffering that comes from grasping of any convention. No matter how good the convention might be, grasping it is uh, still the cause of suffering. Grasping goodness still is suffering. Not to mention grasping badness, but I mean, it's, it's, we, we all know that no matter how uh, good we try to be, it's the grasping that oftentimes gives us the suffering, not the goodness, but the grasping. It's grasping out of ignorance, out of each of And Then the Magga Pudya night is is uh, is where the Puja is a uh, uh, is quite a, an important uh festival day in the buddhist world in uh, thailand for example uh, Manga Puja, all the people uh, go to the monasteries of monks. the what when on arrival his disciples from um, living branch monasteries would. All come to pay respect to him at Wat on that day, Nagar Day, and then uh, sit up all night. We uh, do the circumambulation and uh, meditate. And this, this is the uh, the significance of this of this day is the the twelve hundred and fifty arhats assembled spontaneously. Uh, all going to see the Lord Buddha on the, on the full moon of February, the time of uh, the Buddha's life. Twelve hundred and fifty arms. Uh, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't have prior arrangements. They didn't send faxes or telephone each other. It just uh, is spontaneous. Uh, so uh, that spontaneous? Uh, Quality. They all converge uh, to the Buddhist monastery on that at the same time. So an Arahant is a perfectly realized human being, and uh, like to have uh, this. This we have a say. We have in Buddhism the term Arahant means one who is is perfected, perfected. And understands things as they really are, as uh, having penetrated the four noble truths with wisdom. And so we could say it's a uh, an arahant is perfectly sane human being. And so every, as all, a lesson of than an there's always forms of craziness or insanity. Well, there's some some slight delusions, we until uh, you know, get into the more coarse realms of uh, of humanity that don't have any any attempt, make any attempt to understand life or or sort of develop in any spiritual path at all. But I've contemplated this this, uh, this word and the meaning of this, and. Uh, as it, uh, it is the word that conveys the perfection of a human individual in this life. So, Narahant uh, say is is a human individual that has seen the suffering, understood the suffering, let go of the causes, realized the cessation, and the end of suffering, and and uh, developed and cultivated. The Eightfold path, but, uh, has completely been successful in this, at the cultivation, realizing this path, because then this this puts us into a different. We're, we're no longer coming out of the condition conditioning of our mind. Ahum, so. is has transcended just the conditions of of. Uh, their thoughts and feelings, emotions, habits, they're, they're no longer deluded, no longer identified with these conditions, the body or the, or the mental conditions. They see them as exactly what they are. They you know, see things as they are, without not making anything more of it. It is what it is. As is, it's so flat. But it's, say, uh, the Bhutututana, the or the un- unawakened human being, of course, sees things in all kinds of complicated ways. Things are, are never what they really are. They're, they're, you know, they're, there's so many additions, so many complications, compounding uh, everything with all kinds of prejudice, views, opinions, fears, desires. Emotional problems. So what this is saying is that there is this, this potential in the human for this perfection within the within the, the human lifetime. Really. On Rishikapuja day, we, we celebrate the birth, enlightenment, and and uh, death of the Buddha. So I mean, this is this also symbolically represents that between the experience of birth and and death of the human body is this possibility for enlightenment. Enlightenment then is what? Then we contemplate it seeing things as they are. It's not not like a a state that is is, uh, extraordinary it's not extraordinary because it's, it's, it's not an extreme it's not, it's not something that is, is uh, on, on one extremity or the other but it is that perfect balance of seeing things as they really are and so in our meditation this is what we contemplate we're not not seeking highs or, or or fantastic experiences or uh, extraordinary uh, experiences, but learning to to trust in that attentiveness to the flow of life is as, as we're experiencing it through our uh, senses, through this body, through this present situation. Where well, the the uh, the uh, ordinary person that doesn't contemplate things would think of enlightenment as maybe some ecstatic state this, you know really super fantastic you know, kind of seems vast you know, with, with a lightning bolt and you get know, thrown into a state of uh, uh, like an epileptic spirit you know, enlightenment see it now see it. but I don't find that something that's a very attractive prospect Something that that is that, that where enlightenment is, is is a kind of a, a, an extreme experience because it seems to me that it can only be the ability to see things within the human within the human limitation the human condition see things in a very clear with the clarity of the mind rather than with the delusions the projections the the. Uh, complications that we make about life when, when we aren't clear when we see things through the, the distortions of greed, hatred, and delusion through the illusion of self through just the just means a creature caught up in the, in the habitual reaction to, to the, to the uh, contact that we have with the world just reacting to it So this, is, um, this, this makes sense to me as something worthwhile, where the extreme kind of uh, images of enlightenment and horror, uh, to me, is not a very attractive one. It does not, does not inspire me because uh, I don't have no aspiration to be a superman, or, or, nor do I, I think, if you want extreme experiences, then drugs probably is the best way to do that. These psychedelic drugs, you can have you know, crazy, fantastic enlightenment experiences. But for the but for the uh, they, the the audit, notice in the eight precepts of the Amigari, uh, refraining from taking drugs and, and getting drunk and, and uh, kind of ex- extending the conscious experience to through various. Uh, Chemical means or seeking extreme kind of uh, experiences. But what is monastic life around say uh, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the posture, the body, mindfulness of mental formations, mindfulness of feeling, of being as it is now. You know, I'm not extreme. It's just. The those of this neutral, neutral uh, sensation, because it's in this ordinary that we that we, uh, we we tend to not see, we don't notice, we're not aware of ordinariness. Uh, we say the the is someone who's only only uh, kind of wakes up with the extraordinary, with the extremities of experience. You have to have extreme, you have to have extreme impingements and big events and very interesting things and and very strong impingements in order to feel alive and to be awake. So they live a, a life, a dangerous, exciting, adventurous life, and it makes you feel very alive and awake. Where uh, say you know, ordinarily you might feel very dull and depressed. You're sitting home and you're you get know, depressed. Nothing to do just sitting in yourself in your living room and watching television eating crisps. Drinking beer. Getting depressed. Then to do something exciting like like climb uh Find the jungfrau or the eye girl, do some, some kind of uh, fantastic, uh, really, you know, extreme. Uh, have, a, have a romantic affair. That's an extremity of human experience. Romance is, is exciting. The sexual, anything sexual is exciting. And uh, violence is exciting. And these are, say, on the coarser level of them, and there's refinement. We can, we can also develop, become very aesthetic and, and refined in our taste, cultivate very refined uh, uh, qualities, of, uh, aesthetic beauty, and, and uh, very high uh, and, and subtle to of conscious experience. but that's also if that's our aim those are those are, you know there's a much less much preferable than say just uh, fighting and drinking and, and so forth but it's still uh, still suffering because the extremity of uh, that we have to that we depend upon and identify with when it's not there and we don't know what to do we don't if we're too refined then we just fear and, and despise the course. If, if we are addicted to refinement, then we, we become very threatened and very averse and very uh, critical of anything lesser than than perfection or the most subtle or the finest that we're, that we're very attached to. And if we're attached to the coarser you know, things like sex and violence, then, then we uh, uh, then, then we tend to uh, we, we, the only time we ever feel alive is when in, in, we're involved with these very strong kind of activities and the rest of the time we probably just uh, get depressed get lost so with meditation you're, you're awakening to the ordinary rather than seeking the extraordinary that's why the breath is, is, uh, is an object for mindfulness. Mindfulness is breath. It's nothing, it has no, it's, 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 uh, it's an ordinary physiological function of the body. Or the, or the, the, the body itself, contemplating your own body, when it's not in, in any kind of extreme pleasurable or painful state. When it's just neither particularly pleasant more places just this way the posture not extreme kind of uh, fantastic posture uh, but just sitting standing walking lying down ordinary postures. You know, there's silence the sound of silence is just, it's nothing it's not like Mozart or, or Beethoven or acid rock anything like that not rhythm and blues. It's a fact. And so it's this, this awakening the mind. You're, you're paying attention to, to, to the ordinary. And moving away from the desire for, our, for the extraordinary, being a person is an extraordinary experience. We all are extraordinary, extraordinary in our personality. In some people we have a very a fantastic, marvelous personality, charismatic qualities, and, and other people seem quite ordinary and bland, not particularly exciting interesting. But even the most bland ordinary personality is still extraordinary. So, so they the Arahant and then have this be the, have with, with these, the most ordinary. Wouldn't be attached to having to to be to prove or to 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 exhibit himself or herself in, 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 in extraordinary ways of this or that. I've noticed in the years of my own life as a Buddhist monk and developing this practice this, you know, the, coming from a background say of, of uh, where I definitely wanted to be an extraordinary person. Most thing I dreaded most of all was to be just a mediocre, ordinary type of guy. I remember when I was in, uh, even in high school, in university, I I was always doing things to make myself different, eccentric from the rest. So I had to uh, do a beard when beards were uh, were not in fashion. I had a handlebar mustache, a Salvador Dali type thing, was curled up in the end. Or uh, at the time of the Cuban crisis, I insist on wearing a Fidel Castro type of army hat. <laughs> Couldn't bear to be just an ordinary bloke in the university or anywhere else. There's, there's, there's always a, a sense of, uh, of trying to... to uh, to present myself in, in some of the extraordinary ways and <laughs> just <laughs> kind of a Buddhist monk <laughs> but then in the in the life of the monk, say, say uh, maybe I was extraordinary monk too because uh, for the first four years I was the only western foreign monk in the monastery. The tallest, I was always, you know, double height of the rest of the monks. They I couldn't I couldn't hide you know, even when I was a junior monk, you know, I couldn't I couldn't kind of hide behind the rest. It always stood out, and uh, and there's a picture, photograph of me sitting in a row of Thai monks. So I was a very junior among that time, and then he was only this row of nice uh, kind of uniform Thai monks, and me kind of you know, and a big, like a sore thumb. But in, the, but in the in the, the life itself, this, this needs to be to be extraordinary. Suddenly, I began to see how, how much suffering and and uh, uh, how painful it was to, to always be so concerned with yourself, with your appearance, with your position, with your uh, you know these kind of you know, the sense of your your independence or your your personality or even to try to conceive yourself in ways of being, uh, just to, you know, thinking of yourself as trying to become an ordinary person. Because it didn't seem like that you know, I was going to ever just become ordinary in the, in the way that, that I conceived in that time, but, but, in the, but in the, I began to recognize uh, through insight and in, in through practice the, the ordinariness of, of mindfulness. How to, to, to trust in this mindfulness rather than in the attachment to kind of eccentricity or or ideas or or emotions or uh, thoughts or whatever the conditions of health that they go to extreme. so that the mind began to. To feel much more, begin to recognize and to 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 uh, open to ordinariness rather than to just overlook it by always having this kind of this uh, this movement towards uh, having to get something else, having to become something, having to to get rid of something. Even purity, the idea of being pure, was was uh, seen as a kind of Especially high quality, rather than the ordinary. So then, in practice, one begins to realize that purity is, is ordinary; it's not extraordinary, and that uh, uh, defilements are extraordinary. The nivaranas are extraordinary hatred, and delusion are extraordinary. All these things are extraordinary uh, conditions. And the purity is is ordinary. It's not there's nothing there's nothing you can you know, you there's nothing you can't grasp it, you can't say, you can't you can't, you can't, you can't uh, really uh, see it in, in any extreme way. But you recognize it through mindfulness realize the, the the natural purity through awareness and through non drafting of things so purity is always present not like we become pure by doing something but we realize the purity the true nature of purity and something that's always with us, never separate never lost it there's nothing that can stain it nothing can make it dirty you never lose it no matter how deluded you get no matter how horrible you might be and no matter how horrible or what horrible things you might do the purity is never lost so that's why in meditation we we, we, we are turning to that to remember to realize that innate purity. The ever-present purity, like our real home is that purity that that we realize through mindfulness. Whereas personalities, we, we forget all about it and we, we become all kinds of things. We, we, do, only, we suffer a lot from the mistakes we've made in our lives haven't we? From the, from the bad things we've done and said and from the uh, all the kind of uh, things we can feel guilty or regretful about remorseful about the things we've done in the past that were impure or mean or or crude or or devices or or whatever, you know, we, we can we can feel better to be guilty and, and remorseful about our impurity. When we think of ourselves in terms of becoming a pure monk or a pure nun, then then it's also we get caught in in thinking that that we the purity is something we've got to get that that we're not good enough that we've we've got um, we've got too many faults too many defilements. It's too impure uh, and so you see sometimes you feel this, this idea of being an alms mendicant, sometimes you feel I'm unworthy of these alms I'm too impure, I'm not pure enough but so here are the people offering food and you know shelter and all these things for us to practice and, and, you, can, and you start thinking about yourself whether you're really deserving of these offerings or whether you as a, as a person are pure enough to receive these and probably you're not, not pure enough in terms of how you think and who you think you are because those things there's no purity in personality or in conditions conditions are not pure so that you can't you know not, as long as the conditioned world the conventional world is your Attachment, your identity, your refuge. Then you are always going to be caught in doubts about yourself and purity and your abilities and who you think you are and and how you, well you practice or don't practice or what you've gotten out of meditation. It just ends up as one big question mark, uncertain, uncertainty, insecurity as a as a person. Because we're looking for purity in that which is isn't pure, so, so we're not going to find it. Or we're looking for our our uh, enlightenment in things that aren't that that are not in which is not enlightenment. Or we're looking for uh, permanent security in that which is insecure, basically insecure. Looking for happiness in things that are whose nature is, is suffering. And this is Abhika or this ignorant of not understanding things as they are then we're always we're, we're always trying to find uh, things uh, we're trying to grasp and hold on and keep and, and control uh, the conditioned world and the ideas we have and no matter how hard we try and how determined we are to hang on and hold and and delude ourselves, it always ends up in a disaster. It becomes disillusionment, despair, nothing works out. We become bitter and bitter to it because we, we see it all as if we, we just feel kind of let down or, or that life is hopeless or that, that I'm hopeless, that I'm not good enough. I can't do it in terms of me and myself. But in, uh, like, in Vipassana meditation, where you're, you're investigating Dhamma, you're, you're looking into these, you're examining these, these truths, Four Noble Truths, then, of course, you begin to see what you're doing. And those teachings are very helpful in, in uh, helping you, guiding you to look at the way things are. Not the way you want them, but the way they are. So they're not ideal; they're not they're not ideal truths, you know, about how things should be. They are the, the, the basic pattern of existence, suffering, its causes, the realization of non of cessation and of non-suffering, and the way to live as a human individual, human being, in which we do not create suffering. It's a very community life, also, has its great blessing for us because for many of us, uh, our problems, uh, a lot of our fears and and, uh, inadequacies were around uh, living with other people and uh, not knowing how to relate or or those kind of fears and and sense of. uh, being threatened or insecurity and, and around uh, relation relating to others and there's and so many problems around uh, authority and hierarchy and, and relationships between male and female and between junior and senior and between and uh and monks and nuns and lay people and and, uh, older people and younger people—it so gets so complicated. But in the, the natural purity, there is a, a sense of unity. Then the, then the, uh, in the defilement, the conditions, and the personalities, and the. And the condition part is all variable and different and changing. But we began to, as we, as we meditate in the right way, we begin to know the difference between the natural experience of impingement on us and, and the, the, the things that, that come into our consciousness, and how to not create suffering over that which we're experiencing. And of course, with uh, physical pain, I did this a lot in the beginning years of monastic life, just because my physical pain was. Uh, they were learning to sit on the, in the uh, floor all the time, like in the monastery in Thailand. and had to sit in the polite Thai posture for hours, and on uh, on cement on cement floors. You didn't have carpets like this, and foam pads sit on. Sit on cement floors, and, uh, and you know you really. And, and I wasn't particularly a, a kind of light and agile type person. and then, uh, but then through this, and began to see that the, the you know as I began to understand the Dhamma more and more, what is of the, uh, the, the sensation of pain and the aversion and the resentment and the, the, the suffering I created around the experience of, of uh, unpleasant uh, sensations. So even physical pain teaches us about, about uh, how we create suffering. Where, say, before I'd only thought of suffering as pain, just sitting on the floor like this, and, and, uh, and that is, is painful, and pain is making me suffer. But it wasn't. When I really looked at it, it wasn't the pain that was... It was, it was a, a kind of suffering, but it wasn't what I was... I wasn't creating that suffering. But I did create another kind of suffering onto that kind of experience. And one began to see that, that one didn't have to create suffering onto the pain of life, To the frustrations and the, and the difficulties and, and that of life. That one had a choice. One could, one could uh, just react and say, you know, Why does life have to be like this? And what did I do to deserve this? And and uh, it isn't fair. Or. And then when I do that, you when know, I get caught into that, those kind of attitudes, and I, then I suffer. I'm suffering. But if, uh, if there's mindfulness and wisdom operating, then there is things are, you know, you're feeling, you're experiencing these, these uh, kind of things. But you're not creating suffering. And so this this is a incredible realization for me that, that, that you are you know you, you you can't you aren't going to be able to to make yourself into you know ha- to control the, the the realm this conditioned realm to make it just a pleasant one uh, and comfortable and, and easy for you but you you can't respond to it in the wise and and appropriate way rather than just in the in the habit of of uh, reactiveness now that might not seem very much to people it's not like walking on the water flying up in the air not you know, not uh, something that is uh, even noticeable to anyone, but it is to oneself. The greatest magician, David Copperfield, can make uh, made the, the Statue of Liberty disappear in front of the crowd. It'd be fantastic, isn't it? To to be able to do something extraordinary like that, really miraculous, magical. But you never, you would never know, really, whether it's, you know, what my mind is doing, say i here with pain in my knees, whether I'm creating suffering around the pain or not. No so one would ever know. But that is the kind of realization that really is important for, for ordinary, for us. That's where we live our lives, and not in not in the fantastic experience, the the one off or the the extraordinary, but in in just the flow of life, in in just the routine of breathing and and getting up and sitting down and walking and in uh, in just the process of, of getting dressed, uh, bathing, or eating, or working, so that when we recognize that that middle way between extremes, then that applies to the flow of life. That is, it is, we're no longer people that need extraordinary experiences to feel alive because we're alive with with life itself. There's a continual continuity. There's a reality. There's a, there's a, a sense of being with the flow of life rather than uh, just having to uh, try to find meaning, find something that we don't have yet. Or we'll feel that What is present now is somehow not good enough and not what we're looking for. We're looking for something else. So when we think of Maggapuja and 1,250 1, Arahams assembling, uh, spontaneously assembling, that's, that's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. That is extraordinary. 1,250 Arahams in the Buddha, in to the mind boggles. Look if you find 1,250 Arahams at this day and age. And Buddha. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a fairy tale almost. It's one of those myths of those legends, holy scriptures, and that that we we then kind of regard as you know like these kind of myth and quaint uh, little stories out of out of the uh, out of the book because. For the ordinary person, an arahant in the Buddhist is a, a fantastic creature, like like Superman, extraordinary creature, you know, fantastic you know, marvelous being that we, that we don't, uh, that no, maybe no longer exist because we we are we are we are. Theme. These are kind of exotic terms, for one thing, they're not. You're taking words out of an out of an ancient language, a you know, poly language, an old language like Polly and and uh, and then we're so they they have a special quality. They're not just like uh, uh, you know an the, uh, the, 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 English. Uh, our own language, that they have a special exotic quality that, that does elevate them, exalt them into, into a super state, into extraordinary exotic words do that. So it, this isn't a matter of, of, uh, of just uh, being impressed by the, or by the, uh, inspired by the these kind of high-minded ideas and these exotic words, but these, these are the conventions we use to develop mindfulness. Which isn't exotic or extraordinary. It's just like this. And so you, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, nothing fantastic and there's nothing that you, that you you can't do in any moment. So, really, you know, this is where contemplation, reflection, mean, so that we're not just, just uh, living a, a myth and... Uh, and uh, kind of worshipping idols and and uh, and and giving and and, and and complicating the meanings of the Buddhist teachings, making them more than what he meant them to be. Exalting them, worshipping, teaching—we put the scriptures in, into a bookcase and bow to it, or 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 bow to images on the shrine, and think that by doing various things we're going to to somehow gain merit you know, and. Uh, and uh, achieve some, some special quality or maybe get born into a higher realm other than this human one. An extraordinary realm like a deva Devendra would be, you know, to me that's extraordinary creature. Dina Devendra, a Brahma god. That would be extraordinary. Well, I suppose if you're a deva, it's not extraordinary, it's just ordinary. But well, I'm not a deva, so The devas is extraordinary. Human beings are, probably, you know, they're, they're, they just seem quite ordinary. So then you want to make yourself an extraordinary human being, like an arahant or a Buddha. But You're already extraordinary. That's not the point, isn't it? You're you're already an extraordinary, unique personality. Every one of you is. So the the practice is towards letting go of those, of of learning to relax and to release your grasp on the extraordinary and to rest in that, purity of being pure awareness where you do not create suffering, you do not create self you do not uh, uh, compound anything or uh, project onto anything because you you are at ease with and at rest, with the flow of life as you're experiencing it and you respond to it you learn from it, you we keep learning because we all have what we call vipaka karma, or the resultant karma from the past. Yes, so when things happen to us, you uh, know, things are going to extraordinary, tragic, or what they or, are or, or extreme kind of situations or experiences it can still happen to us. But we no longer create suffering around them because we're, we're no longer uh, deluded by the, by the conditions, the extraordinary conditions we're experiencing. We found that perfect balance, that, that peace, that middle way, Matimabhati Bhattara, let